Thank you very much. Good morning. Welcome. Um, if you missed me at the beginning, I'm Duncan, a lead Revelation Church. So wonderful to have you all with us this morning to be gathered together as family. Um, so welcome, particularly, as I said, if it is your first time. The Bible can be difficult to read sometimes, can't it? Sometimes you come across a passage and it takes most of your mental capacity to just try and work out what on earth is this bit of scripture, even trying to say what is going on in it, what is the thread of the story, just trying to get your head around all of that can be enough before you then start to work out, okay, what are the, what are the themes going on here? What is God trying to say through it to me? How am I meant to actually grow as a disciple having read this? All of those sorts of things. But the Bible's not always like that. Sometimes it is much more straightforward. And today, I am pleased to say, is one of those times where it is just a bit more straightforward for us. Today, as we, uh, as Jem said, continue our series looking through the book of Philippians and, um, and getting into all that Paul's got to say in that and looking at life in Christ, here what Paul does is he commends two men to the church in Philippi. And his message to the church in Philippi, as he, as he talks about these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, is really straightforward. He is essentially saying to the church, be like these men. And so my message today is simply called, be like these. That's it. We're going to read from Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Um, and so if you've got a Bible, do turn there. It's always good to follow along if you can. Um, but if not, um, the words will appear on the screen so you can read there. I hope, this is Paul writing, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they will seek their own interests, not the interest of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I know, I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, sh that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The Bible is a wonderfully varied book. Just two sermons ago, so there's a few verses back in this, we were, as Robin led us through, beholding and enjoying and marveling at this wonderful picture of God himself in the incarnation revealed to us in Jesus Christ and how Christ has been exalted by the Father. One of the most majestic descriptions of God in the whole of Scripture. And now, as I say, just a few short verses on, we are beholding two men. Just two ordinary men average men. And you think, in comparison, this is nowhere near as exciting. Can we go back to the great picture of Jesus Christ in the beginning of chapter 2, please? But 
this is actually a really helpful reminder for us as we see two ordinary people talked about in Scripture, that this is what Scripture is about. Scripture is all about revealing God to us. But at the same time, it is how God has made himself known to ordinary, average people. How he, as a God, has come into the lives of very broken, very ordinary people, made himself known to them, turned their lives totally upside down, and has transformed ordinary people into extraordinary people. And what Paul is doing here, I think, is really helpful for us. Because so far in chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 1 as well, he has talked about how these believers in Philippi, they are to live their lives together. That Now that they are in Christ, as he likes to say, now they're Christians, believers, trying to work out life together, this is how you should live. And he's, he's given them this wonderful picture of Christ and said, here's your example, follow him, be like him, and, and do this, and don't do this, and hold fast to this, and shine like lights over here. And it's great teaching. It's, it's marvelous teaching. But they may have a question at this point. They may start to be thinking, okay, Paul, but, but what does this actually look like? How can I start to live it? Can you help us understand this? They might be asking the question that a girl every single time in my year 11 trigonometry class would always ask, how, are we, how is this ever going to help me in real life? They might be asking that sign of question, how do we actually live this out? Is this just idealism? Is it just, this is a good aspiration, it's nice to have this picture of Jesus, but fundamentally there's no way that we can actually live like this. We can't live it out. Maybe you felt like that before. You felt Christian teaching, it all sounds very good, but surely it's just some unattainable ideal. Can't really live like that. And here Paul's saying that here are two men, just two men that you know, you know quite well, but they are two outstanding examples of everything that I've been teaching. Makes it so much more accessible for them. It, it normalizes it for them. It says that if these guys can live it out, so can you too. This is something you can get hold of. And so here's how we're going to approach the text this morning. We are going to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus both in turn. And we're going we're gonna to pull little bits out of, their, of what Paul says about them to get a, an insight into what, what, does, what is Paul commending about them? Why does he say that they are so outstanding? And so it will be a little bit fragmented as we go through that and look at this and look at that. But then I want to finish by drawing it all together, the, the thing that I think unites everything that Paul is saying, that I think what Paul is saying here is such a vital lesson for us as a church at the stage of life that we're in to get hold of. And so I'd like you to listen to all of my sermon, but if you do tune out at any point, just try and dial back in for the end. All right, we got a deal? We're in? Yeah, some of you are already planning your little mid-sermon nap. Like, okay, just give me saying to your friend, just give me a nudge, you know, when it looks like he's coming into land. I'm not going to give you cues like that. You've got to stay with me the whole time. <laughs> so he starts with Timothy. And Timothy has been a long-term companion of Paul, met him in a place called Lystra, 
called him to come and be with him, follow him. And he's known him for a long time. And they actually planted the church in Philippi together. And so that's why Timothy's name is included at the beginning of the letter. He's sort of a co-author. It's definitely from Paul, but sort of Timothy's maybe scribing it, which makes the fact that he then has to say some very nice things about himself as he writes it down. Kind of awkward, but um, maybe he just made it up himself. He's just like, oh, Paul didn't say any of this, but I'll just go. He didn't do that. And Paul then says in verse 19, he indicates his intent to send Timothy to them. He says, I'm going to send Timothy to come and be with you. But before he arrives... I want you to know what he's like. And he commends him. And what a commendation he gives of this man. He says in verse 20, how he begins, I have no one like Timothy. No one like him. We should sit up at this point and take notice. Because Paul knew a lot of people. He had a lot of good people in his life. You only have to look at something like Romans chapter 16, where he is just saying, look, I've got Phoebe. I want to commend Phoebe to you and, and, and a, a Priscilla and Aquila and Junia and Andronicus and Herodian. It's like name after name, like, oh, they're great, they're great, they're great. It just like keeps coming to his mind of people he wants to commend. That's just one church, a church he didn't even plant. And so he probably didn't know people that well in it. But against this backdrop of all these people, he's saying, Timothy stands apart as exemplary. And the first thing he says about Timothy is that that sets him apart is his genuine love of other people. Verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. What makes Timothy who he is so worthy of praise in the first instance is just he is really, really good at loving people. Just genuinely, truly loving others. Paul actually then goes on in verse 21 to set up a bit of a contrast. He says, uh, he's going to be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests not that of Jesus Christ. And we all know what it is like to uh, meet somebody and and to to know somebody and to feel like they kind of love us and to feel like, I think they're genuinely concerned for my interests and they seem to be saying the right things, but then down the line you realize there was a bit of an agenda at work. They weren't really seeking your own interests. They weren't really for you in quite the same way. But here Paul's saying, look, Timothy... No agenda. No, he is the the real deal, the genuine article. And in fact, that word genuine that he uses is a word that could also be translated natural or naturally. And what that means in the sense of it's coming out of his very nature. Saying this is who Timothy really is. He just loves people. That when Timothy turns up to you in Philippi, he's not just going to switch it on. He's not sort of on his way to Philippi just grumbling, oh my goodness, I'm going to hang out with the Philippians. They're so annoying. They've got so many problems. And like that, you just wouldn't believe us. Oh, hey guys, it's so great to be with you. I'm so pleased to be just thrilled. It is so good to be amongst you. That's not how Timothy is at all. Love just flows out of who he very much is. There's nothing fake about him, 
nothing surface level, nothing performative about the love that he's doing. And I think in our culture today, we are so good at performative love. Social media posts that are about the right causes, brands making statements about the right justice issues because they know it will go down well, appearing as though we're loving when we know that the eyes of the world or even just our friendship group might be on us. And I think that because that is the way that culture is, we can start to think, oh, that is all that love really is. But here we see we can't be content with just appearing to be loving. We need to be genuine in our love. I have to watch myself in this. I have to check that I am truly looking to grow and trying to genuinely love people, not just saying the right thing, nodding sympathetically when I'm hearing about things going on in people's lives, genuinely looking to, to put their interests first. Timothy's showing us here there is a greater standard of love that is available to us, that we can step into, and that we can have for one another, and that we can strive after as a family. And I think we need to sometimes honestly ask ourselves, are we actually genuinely growing in our love for one another? Are we really making time for each other? Are we inconveniencing ourselves, perhaps, to allow ourselves to give our hearts to one another? and see other people's interests as higher than our own. So firstly, he's genuinely loving of other people. Secondly, he is devoted to Jesus Christ. The contrast in verse 21, I think, goes in a slightly different direction to what you would expect. Because he says, what does he say? He says, verse 21, they all seek their own interests. And then I think what we would expect is him to say, not those of other people. But he doesn't. He says, Timothy, everyone else, in contrast to Timothy, seeks their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing here, as he sets up this contrast, is he is, um, excuse me, good time for your nap if you're planning one. Just locate myself in my notes. And <laughs> um, what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's saying that in all Timothy does, he is seeking after Jesus Christ. He's doing two things. He's saying Timothy genuinely is seeking after Jesus Christ. But he's also saying in Timothy's genuine love and his concern for other people and his serving of other people, he's also serving Jesus Christ. He says something similar, verse 22. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He's saying, look, Timothy has devoted himself to me. He has devoted himself thoroughly and fully to me like a son to a father, working alongside me, giving himself completely to the work that I am called to and, and doing what I'm laying out for him and doing the, the tasks and maybe going to fetch me drinks and whatever it might be, carrying my Bible for me. Happy to follow my lead, but he hasn't done any of it because he wants to serve me. For Timothy, all of it because he wants to serve the gospel. He wants to give himself to the work of Christ. 
So you could hear about Timothy, oh, he's genuinely concerned for the, love of, for, for the, 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 the sake of others. And just think, oh, Timothy, he sounds like a nice bloke. He just seems like he's going to be one of the really nice guys of society. You know, people, some people are just like that, aren't they? They're just very loving people. I think that's what Timothy must be like. But here we see where all of this comes from. He, it's because he is devoted to Christ. There have been moments in my own involvement with church where I would say that my own motivation, particularly in sometimes times when I was in Nottingham, my own motivations were I just loved the people side of church. I just loved getting to meet people. I loved getting to know them, help them get involved in church, getting to build community, build friendships. I loved some of the, the work of church and the, just the, the, the detail of it and the behind-the-scenes stuff and just got a kick out of doing church. None of that is inherently bad, but here we see there is no question as to why Timothy is involved in this thing called church. It's not because he just loves the organization of it. It's not because he just happens to love people and so a church is a good place for him to get involved in. He is involved in church because he loves Jesus Christ. Above all, he is just radically committed and devoted to the person of Jesus and just wants to give all of his life to him and so the place that he's found to do that is in serving with Paul and giving himself and loving the Philippian church. And so he serves. And here Paul is picking his words very carefully in verse 22. He's making a deliberate parallel here. When he uses the word serve there, he is using the same word form in the Greek as in verse 7. In the description of Jesus Christ where we hear of Jesus that, as we looked at before, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. The same word. Just as Christ emptied himself out in service and obedience, so Tim Timothy has willingly made himself a servant willingly emptied himself out of obedience and devotion to Christ. That just as he has devoted himself to the work of Christ, he has become like Christ. As he has become like Christ, he's then able to love others as Christ has loved others. All of this genuine love, this genuine concern we read of, this natural love that he has is flowing out from this place. As he has given himself to Christ, as he's become like Christ, he has been able to love others in the way that Jesus loves. He didn't just try really hard to love the Philippians. He didn't just sit down and think, right, I'm just going to do it now. I'm just going to make a decision. I'm just going to give myself to loving the Philippians and loving Paul and serving him. It came out of his love for Christ. This is really good news for us. Really good news. We do not have to try and make ourselves into excellent, genuine lovers of other people. Because people can be pretty hard to love. You ever noticed? If you disagree with me right now, just wait until you spent the, the Christmas day with your family. 
You try and tell me that Auntie Jean isn't difficult to love at some point. People in the church can be hard to love. I know myself very well. I can be a very difficult person. I can hide it well, but I can be hard to love at points. I have a character witness that I could call upon <laughs> in the form of my wife, but she's in kids' work, so can't ask her. But what we see here is we don't have to start with trying to love one another well. We start by loving Christ. Start by devoting yourself to him. Start by loving the one who is so much easier to love than each and every one of us. The one who is truly beautiful. The one who really is full of splendor. The one who really is wrapped in light and has saved us and come to us and taken away all of our sins. The one who we can know is perfect and blameless and good. He is so much easier to love than any of us. We start by looking to him and loving him, and we find that as we devote ourselves to him, as Christ is formed in us through that, suddenly we can have genuine love, genuine care for one another. And thirdly with Timothy, he has proven worth. You know, verse 22, you know his proven worth. Do you know what I'm really good at? I am really good. I don't like to toot my own horn too much when I'm preaching, but I will today. I am really good at genuinely loving people and being totally committed to loving Christ for about 20 minutes and then run out of steam, get distracted, fall into temptation. Someone does something to annoy me. Game over. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. You're all like, no way. I can go 30 minutes. Timothy is no flash in the pan. He doesn't just show up on a Sunday, all holy and great, able to put on a show, able to do it right, but then the rest of the week he's all over the place, total mess. The jury is not out on Timothy. He has already been shown he has proven himself to be good and righteous and holy and worthy. Here we hear of consistency. There's just day after day, week after week, month after month. This is how he showed up. Full of genuine love and concern for people. Full of devotion for Christ. Self-sacrificial love for Christ, full of Christ within him. You know, you cannot fake proven worth. And there is, sadly for us, no shortcuts to it. The only way to this kind of proven worth is through the hard, long work of inner formation of Christ within us. It's what Eugene Peterson calls, I love this phrase, long obedience in the same direction. He's got a book called that. I've never read it, but it sounds like it would be good. So there's a book recommendation for you. Long obedience in the same direction. Just keep on following him. The way that Paul is talking here is he has, he sounds like he has seen right into Timothy's life. That Timothy has willingly 
been transparent and opened himself up and been authentic and vulnerable and shown who he really is to Paul. And Paul has seen him up close and he's seen the slow work of discipleship forming within him and seeing this man is growing in the things of Christ. And through that, he's seen there's something of worth in this man. Over the last couple of years in particular, the church in the West has been through a little bit of a humbling. You might have seen in the news plenty of higher profile leaders falling. Sexual misconduct, affairs, toxic leadership environments that have been uncovered, bullying. It's a sorry story of what the church has looked like. Men that have been proven to be unworthy of the position that they are in. And of course, it's not just high-profile leaders, but happens closer to home. And it's sad to say, but I'd imagine everybody in this room has either had first-time experience of a difficult environment like that and leaders not being what they should, or you have experience of a friend, you know somebody who's been through something like this. And the more you hear of it and the more you experience it, perhaps, the more I think it's easy to think, is this just what the church is doomed to be? Is this just how things have to be now? Do do we just have to expect this of the church? And then you continue that line of thinking. You think, if leaders are falling in this way, what hope do I have? These are the people that are meant to be our examples. How am I going to do well? Is compromise and falling at some point just the only path? As Paul shows us Timothy here, I think we find hope. Here is a worthy man, a man who, over time, through all manner of different circumstances, has proven himself that he is worthy, that it is possible to live a worthy life, that whatever is going on around us, whatever's going on in our church or in the culture out, out, out at large, whatever environment we find ourselves in, we can choose to live this way. We can choose to live the worthy way. We can choose to work together to build a church this way. We can choose to live lives, as Paul says in chapter 1, that are worthy of the gospel. We don't have to fall into compromise. We can continue to follow him. This is the beauty of the gospel, that we can never live worthy, good lives all by ourselves, but the gospel comes to us, transforms us, and changes us and calls us into a better life, calls us into living lives that are worth something, that have true value. And it's this worthy man, Timothy, that Paul sends on. But before he sends Timothy, he sends Epaphroditus, a man that we know much less about than Timothy. In fact, these are the only verses we have of him. And your translation in verse 25 might say that Paul is sending back Epaphroditus, and that is exactly right. Epaphroditus was part of the church in Philippi, and he he came to Paul as Paul was in prison in Rome and delivered a gift that the church in Philippi had. And, And this was a significant gift. Church in Philippi didn't have much money, but they gave what they could to to support Paul and to honor him. And Epaphroditus was the one that brings it. And now he's saying, right, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. But again, before he does, he he wants to to talk about him. And he starts, verse 25, by calling him brother. 
And we might gloss over this. We might think, brother, so far, so Christian, not much to see here. But Epaphroditus is as pagan and as non-Jewish as it gets. His name quite literally derives from the pagan god Epaphrodite. Before Paul was saved, there would almost have been nothing more despicable to him than a man like this. They would call the Gentiles dogs. There was animosity and he was the unclean one. Look at the uniting power of the gospel. That now, because they are both together in Christ, he is calling them him brother. And not just brother, not just addressing him as family, but goes on and calls him fellow worker and fellow soldier. Do you know what Paul is doing here? He does it all the time in his writing. Paul is making up words because the words that he has available do not adequately express the level of unity and togetherness that they have. He does this all the time. He puts the, the, what you might have in your translation as co or fellow as like a prefix that makes a whole new word to say we are together, we are joined, we are united, we are one. We otherwise would have been enemies, but we are together now. Joined together, serving together, working together, laboring together, fruitful together. Can give us such hope as a church family. So different, come from so many different places. Without the gospel, probably, I don't know whether we'd be enemies, but I don't know whether we'd get along, but in him, not just joined together, but able to be fruitful together. And he wants this, the church in Philippi to know just how much Epaphrodite has given. Well, not Epaphrodite. <laughs> Epaphroditus. And so he goes on. And he says... Excuse me again. This, in this passage of Epaphroditus, there really is only one thing. He's talking about his illness and how it, this illness that Epaphroditus had nearly took him into death. In verse 26, we read, he was, Epaphroditus was distressed because you heard that he was ill. In verse 27, he says, indeed, he was ill. He was near to death. He, was nearly, he nearly died for the sake of Christ, risking his life. And what it seems like here is that this journey that Epaphroditus took to Rome was along the way, he got ill probably on his journey and wanted to keep going and wanted to ensure that he finished the job that he had going to Rome. And he got ill and it was so severe, nearly cost him his life. And it's hard for us to really kind of iron out the details and work out exactly what is going on here, what's, what's happening. But it's clear that the single point that Paul is trying to make through talking about Epaphroditus is, here is a man that is willing to lay down everything for the sake of serving Jesus. He nearly died for the sake of Christ. As I said before, we don't know anything else about this man. We don't know anything of what Epaphroditus was like. But yet, here he gets six whole verses in Scripture about him. 
But yet in these six verses of scripture, we really only learn one thing about him, that he got ill, he nearly died, but then he got better. And then Paul goes on to say, honor him. Honor him and people like him. And then says, and receive him in the Lord with all joy. He's saying, if you weren't already planning to, I want you to throw this man the biggest party when he gets back. I want you to celebrate like you've never celebrated. When Epaphrodite, you, you see him on the, on the horizon as he's coming, we want, I want you to get the banners out. I want you to start celebrating that this man is here. Honor this man. Here is an example for you. And I think, why? Why is he such an example? Because he's willing to give up everything that he has. When we were uh, on Monday, we had our Onward student event, and Jen was sharing a little bit about her own experience of um, giving up a, a, a year for work, um, volunteering for the church for our discipleship year. And she said something, just a, a phrase that stuck with me, that God loves it when we sacrifice things for him. Just very simple, but it stayed with me. He loves it when we sacrifice things for him. And one of the joys that I've had in the three years of leading a church plant is seeing a church that is willing and ready to sacrifice for him. And through sacrifice of serving and time and money, people giving themselves to serving the work of the church. And we have loved it and we've enjoyed it and we've all benefited from it. But God loves it. It is pleasing to him when he sees people sacrificing and giving to his work. If there's one point in this part of Epaphroditus that Paul wants us to grasp is that the commendable life, the commendable Christian life is a life of sacrifice. And it's sacrifice that God doesn't just love, but he honors. Sacrifice always leads to honor. Twice in these verses on Epaphroditus, Paul mentions death. And in verse 27, he says, Epaphroditus was near to death. In verse 30, he uses a phrase in Greek that he was coming unto death. And this phrase, him coming unto death, is used only one time in all of Paul's writing elsewhere. And that is back in verse 8, as we can see on the slide just here. Back in verse 8, where, again, speaking of Christ, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In referring back, again, Paul could not be clearer in what he is saying about this man. He is saying in his humility, in his willingness to give everything, in his sacrifice, just like Timothy, Epaphroditus too looks like Jesus. He laid it all down. And through sacrifice always comes honor. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
A life of sacrifice will always lead to a life uh, to experiencing honour. I don't know what kind of bash they threw for Epaphroditus when he came back. I don't know whether it really was party of the century, whether they went all out, or whether it was just a, a slightly sadder affair. Maybe just a quiche on the table, bottle of schlur, half-eaten bowl of Doritos that they picked at when they were waiting for him to come. Welcome home, Epaphroditus banner that's just fallen on the floor. But I can guarantee you one thing. When he entered into glory, he received the affirmation and the honor of his Father in heaven. He received the affirmation of the Lord who looked him in the eye and said, well done, good and faithful servant. He would have heard the rejoicing of heaven for him laying down his life, for being willing to go even to the point of death for this life that Christ had called him on. He shared in the heavenly and continues to share in the heavenly honor of Jesus Christ, God the Son. This, as we look at Epaphroditus, we see what Christian greatness looks like. Faithful, sacrificial obedience, laying everything down. As we look at Timothy, we see it too. The devotion to Christ, the genuine loving of other people, proved day after day after day. This is Christian greatness. And as Paul holds these men up, as he says, here is greatness, here is greatness, there's one thing that I really want us to see that runs through the whole of the passage. In these descriptions of great Christianity, there is no mention at all of gifting. None at all. Doesn't talk at all about what these men might be able to do. If you just read these passages, it's all you've got. You'd never know. Could they preach world-class sermons to mega churches or could they barely string two words together? As you look at these men, they might be men that are completely unremarkable. They might have, you might not even look twice at them. But in the kingdom of God, they are titans. These are not men known for their outstanding gifting. They are men known for their extraordinary character. Character that is formed through devotion to Christ. And as Paul writes here to a church that is in circumstances not too dissimilar to ours, small church, deeply embedded in an unchristian city, wondering how they're going to do well, how they're going to keep going. As Paul writes to them, and he's looking to encourage them in their life as a church and their mission and all that they're called to, and how they might be able to, as Jem looked at last time, shine as lights in their city. He's saying this. This is what you need. This is what you need to be like, and this is what you need to strive after. For a church to thrive it needs men and women of extraordinary character. I think this is a timely reminder for us and where we're at as a church. We are in such an exciting time. We have moved to this great venue. We've known, uh, as we've seen a lot of newer people come in, a lot of wonderful newer people join us. And we're, we're on this exciting growth trajectory and we've had a lot to celebrate. We've had baptisms, dedications. We're looking forward to our carols. There's all kinds of things opening up, new horizons we can look to, of things that we could be moving into and pushing into. It can be so tempting to think, okay, what we need now, what we need to pray for, what we need to be focusing on, 
we need more gifting. We need more people that can lead worship or more evangelists or more youth leaders or more preachers, more people that can do the stuff so we can keep stepping into the things that God has for us. Now, we are deeply committed to identifying, growing, releasing people in all of the gifting that they have and all that God's given them. But as Paul holds these men up, I think that what he wants us to see is that the strength of a church is not in the strength of its gifting. The strength of a church is in the strength of its character. How deeply we are all individually and as a family formed in him. And the strength of our character will be formed by the strength of our devotion to Christ. And so if we really are ambitious to see our church, city reached. If we want to see the church on the move, the kingdom advance, this is what we need to cultivate. And as I said before, the thing is, there's no shortcuts to this. We can't just parachute in character into our life. If we want to be truly effective, if we want to be commendable as a church, it will only be through the long, unglamorous, often painful work of dying to our own interests, learning to put one another first, learning to put our city first, surrendering ourselves utterly and completely. It's a big ask. It's a hard ask for us. But it's on people like this that Jesus will build his church. And it comes with the promise of honor. Maybe in this life, maybe you'll find some people that will throw you a great bash with two quiches, but there's a guarantee, without doubt, of a life of honor in the age to come. That we will hear the words as we look in his eye and he smiles at us of well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to pray in just a moment. But there is um, a leadership principle that I'm familiar with that says, essentially, what you'd like to do for the many... If you can't do it for the many, do it for the few. And one of the things that comes out of this passage, one of the obvious things that we see is it is good to publicly honor those who have exemplary character. And so there are so many in the church. I wish I could just go around each and every one of you and be like, this is what you, why you are so great. But we probably don't have time for that. And so we can't do it for the many, but I want to just do it for the two today. There are two people I want to publicly honor and just thank for who they are. And so I wonder if you would join me in a moment of, of thanking them and honoring them. Um, so I'll, after I've spoken to each of them or, or named both of them, um, would you be up for that, of, of then thanking them? Some of you are wondering, who on earth is it going to be? And then I'll pray. Maria. I know that the people I'm going to pick out are not going to thank me for doing this, but I hope they'll, thank, they'll appreciate it afterwards. But Maria, like Timothy, you show genuine love for people. You are exemplary in the way you consistently put other people first, their needs first. You have a deep pastoral heart. And over the three years of our church's life, you have proven yourself to be of value and to be of worth. Thank you for all you have done.
and Dylan, mate. You might think, oh, I haven't been part of the church for as long, but in the time that you have been part of us, you have shown yourself to be a man of outstanding sacrifice. Just like Epaphroditus, you have given yourself and given yourself over to who we are. And you do it week after week. This is probably the first Sunday you haven't turned up at 8 a.m. And given yourself servant-heartedly. And we see it as a church. We love it. We honor it. But your Father in heaven sees it. And he loves it. And he honors you and he will honor you. Thank you for all you do for us, mate. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are so committed to us. You want us to be made new. You want us to be transformed. You are a God who gets hold of very ordinary looking people and transforms them and does in them the extraordinary. We thank you that we see examples of this in our church family. We thank you for the gifts that you have given us people of good character to look at and to follow in scripture around us in our daily life we thank you that you have given us your son Jesus Christ to follow in his footsteps and we pray that as we do you would form us into a church that is commendable in your sight that we would be of outstanding character just like these people. Help us to take our eyes off the flashy gifting and the exciting things that we might look to. Help us to be so committed to our inner formation of following you, trusting that as we do, not only will you honor us, not only will we have so much to look forward to individually, but through it, you would do the great work of building your kingdom and growing your church. Amen. Amen. Well, that brings us to an end. Um, So if you've got kids, please do go uh, to the kids' work and pick them up. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Next Sunday, we'd love